Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. My guests this week are Joshua Bolchover and John Lin, founders of the Hong Kong-based architecture practice, Rural Urban Framework. In 2005, the Chinese government announced its plan to urbanize half of its remaining 700 million rural citizens by 2030. At the same time, Joshua and John set up their practice as a research and design collaborative based at the University of Hong Kong, conducted as a nonprofit organization designing for charities and NGOs working in mainland China. RUF has built over 15 projects in various villages, including schools, community centers, hospitals, village houses, bridges, and even incremental planning strategies. Of course, much has changed in China since John and Joshua began their practice. The rural-to-urban migration, emblematic of China's development over the past several decades, is in some ways now reversing, following changes in government policy as well as massive economic and cultural shifts, which has caused Joshua and John to adapt and reorient their practice in different directions. Will they still co-direct rural-urban framework, Josh is also director of the District Development Unit, which focuses on the growth of developing regions in Mongolia, Nepal, and the Philippines, while John has established a postgraduate program at HKU called the Building Society that implements experimental building practices in traditional contexts. I happened to be in Shenzhen last month visiting family, so on a warm and humid October afternoon, I made a trip to Hong Kong to meet John and Joshua in their office at HKU. And now... Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. So because there are two of you, I thought we'd start just by both of you briefly introducing yourselves. John, do you want to start first? Okay. I mean, I think the important things for me are um, that I was born in Taiwan, you know, I kind of immigrated to the U.S. And then um, I started to work in Hong Kong. And we met Josh, who worked in China. And we soon discovered there was this kind of interesting relationship between um, being American and being British and uh, a lot of, I would say, productive uh, differences in how we see the world. Um, yeah, and, and that's uh, been a little bit this, um, you know, it's been a kind of a dialogue, you know, um, between uh, various sets of interests. Yeah, yeah I'm Joshua. I'm from Manchester in the UK and uh, spent various different uh, parts of my life in London and also in New York where John and I w came very close to meeting each other but didn't actually. I was working in an office and he was studying across the street from that office. Um, so when we actually met in Hong Kong in 2007, eight. Eight, maybe Six. something around that. I wasn't here in 2006, 2007. Then we started to think about how we could work together and found that kind of commonality. I was already interest. conceptualizing you in 2006. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, before you showed up. Right. You've introduced yourselves in the past as John, on the one hand, being the rural of rural urban framework, and Josh, on the other, the, the cosmopolitan urban. 
Could you talk about this attraction to this dichotomy of the rural and the urban and when it first became apparent to you both as a line of inquiry in architecture? I mean, I think it was when we met, John said, why don't you come take a look at a project that I'm working on in rural China? I said, okay, I'm game. So we went, it took eight hours in the car ride, which is, this has become a kind of origin myth story. So it's actually <laughs> true as well, so that helps. Um, but we were driving in this car and we were talking about the types of landscapes that we were passing through. And we set up this whole research agenda of how we were going to document this research, the, the thing that we were looking at. And I said, it has to be like every 10 seconds, we must take a photograph in order to be meticulous about our research methods. And John said, why are you doing that? Why don't you just take anything that, you, that looks good? So, or it looks interesting. So, but the important thing was that there was a diversity of approaches, but there was a conversation about what we were seeing. And for me, I've always been interested in processes of urban change throughout, but not so much in terms of urban planning, but really about architecture's contribution in how it can set up ways that places can transform. And I think through what we were seeing as we were going through this landscape was this state of transformation. It was transitional. It was becoming urban in different ways. And I think, you know, when we went to the the rural areas when we actually got to the sites John was also like fascinated by what was there you know the traditions the vernacular structures and the conversation about how to intervene and how to build up from what was there into something new became a key agenda to what we were doing I think well I think it was just strange that you were looking at your watch the whole time I didn't, want to miss the, I didn't want to miss the <laughs> so timing. Out the <laughs> window. But, but, you know, we, our first uh, debate was about the method, you know. And, and the other thing was that you could say I, I had gotten a commission to do a, a sm small school building, you know, and that was just very straightforward. But I think Rural Urban Framework really began with the second project, you know, which was the renovation of the old courtyard building that the, the school had originally been housed in. And this was embedded in the middle of the village, and it was this question of what can we do with it? And we were working with a charity, and I like to describe Rural Urban Framework as a kind of geopolitical project because it, it had a lot to do not just with you know, the journey and the things we were seeing, but with the ways in which we began to um, uh, work with charities and governments um, across the border from Hong Kong to China. So there were a lot of charities in Hong Kong uh, donating money to build kindergartens. You know, and this was encouraged by the mainland government who was pursuing a nine-year education program. So then they, you know, they had called these the hope schools. They had even sort of branded this, this idea that people could each build a kindergarten you know, in the village. And and throughout that, what's interesting is that that model for financing has, um, has constantly been changing and evolving, you know, and, and, and for me, that's the real project, mm. you know, the project of uh, the creation of an architectural uh, opportunity or design uh, program that perhaps wouldn't normally exist under, you know, our existing conditions of um, uh, um, clients, developers, you know, um, 
and, and, and it's an endless pursuit because that, you know, we have to keep reinventing ourselves. Yeah. And things have changed so much since Rural Urban Framework began in terms of the kind of political climate that you're working in. There's this now recognizable diagram of architectural practices that came out in an Okro Key issue, I think in 2016, that kind of maps emerging practices in architecture according to various poles. Mm. And your practice is situated uh, as close to the activist one as possible. Would you, would you characterize RUF on those terms still? Does it feel like a, an activist practice to you? Um, I don't think it was ever framed in that way. I think we framed ourselves as a, as, as John was describing, as, as a way to find an alternative model to make architecture. And it was really about that. How do we find a place uh, that is outside of the profession, that's embedded in the institution, that can do things that you can't do in the profession itself? And how does that um, way of working that embeds research, design, making, constructing buildings into a form of research, I think was critical to what we were doing. Of course, a part of that, and I think John mentioned it earlier, was this idea that creating the conditions for making architecture is absolutely critical to what we do. And to, in order to create the conditions for making architecture, that means forms of engagement with, you know, people in government, you know, local bureaucrats, NGOs, people, other forms of stakeholders, which necessitate our involvement in order to create the possibility to make architecture. But I think for me, activist uh, connotates something else, which I don't think really we were that involved in. Well, there's always a gap, you know, between um, how you um, how you're working and how you yourself conceive of the process, which is very direct. You know, it's really like, hey, how, how do we find ways to uh, to make the kind of um, work that we want? And we, it's less conscious about how is it received, you know, in the, in the broader discourse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so at the time there was, I don't remember hearing the term activist architect. You know, I mean, it's very frequent now. But I don't remember even hearing that term before, you know. So um, it doesn't mean that anything's changed. But for us at the time, it was a reaction to a kind of worldwide celebration of um, urbanization. And, you know, in, especially in China after the Olympics, mm -hmm. uh, there was this, like, eagerness about being able to build your architecture fantasy in the Chinese city, you know, uh, the, you know, Rem had just done the, the the CCTV, and then you know Herzog and the, the Bird's Nest, and so for us, I think it's always been more, you know, thinking about where that boundary is, and that, that periphery, which at the time you could relate it to the the, the urban rural periphery, and we, you know we always talked about we were in the rural because that was where urbanization at the time for us was felt most intensely, you know, where its origin was uh, for a number of reasons. Um, now, 
the, the, this kind of front line has changed, I think, for, for both of us, you know. Yeah, I think that's a, it was, it was funny because, you know, that now a lot of people are working in the rural and it's become something that's become trendy and people are engaging with it now. But I think, as John says, when we were working with it, there weren't really many people really looking at it. And even Rem in the Guggenheim exhibition had this funny uh, installation where he had the number of books written about the city on the one hand and the number of books written about the countryside on the other. And ours was the only one <laughs> that was placed there. I just want to say, but we, we have also moved on, you know, I mean, um, uh, there's the difference between activism is that it's purposefully about the process, you know, wanting to uh, have a certain form of public engagement, you know, in, in the architecture process. Ours has been, I would say, strategically the reverse, you know, in which there is this kind of um, all these barriers to being able to realize a project that, that perhaps is in the in a place that uh, resists, you know, the participation of architects, you know, and you could call it social, you could call it active, but these are simply uh, the conditions that we have to go through in order to realize those projects. You, you see what I mean? There's a difference between like, you know, okay, let's make it social by trying to engage all these communities versus um, we're not going to get anything built unless, you know, we, we, we do those things. And, and then again, it boils down more and more as I look back to the, the, the idea of money, you know, and, and one of the great things that um, was always a challenge is to have to get money from all these different sources. What's interesting is you have suddenly all these shareholders, but you also don't have a single client, you know, so then the architect, their role um, becomes a bit looser. You know, you have a bit more freedom to define it. And I think you gain power through that process of compromise. It's kind of interesting um, as I reflect back on, on this. Um, it's making me think of this exhibition the CCA put on a couple of years ago now called The Things Around Us, which featured your practice alongside 51N4E and really framed a kind of practice that John, you were just describing one that is um, contextual uh, by definition. This is um, coming from the curator of that exhibition, Francesco Garotti, and he was framing the both your practice in 51N4E as engaging in a form of power that also embraces this idea of an ethics of weakness. Yeah, and, and this is interesting because what I was trying to describe was that it's not a weakening of the architectural role. In fact, I think, uh, I don't know if strengthening, you know, but it's, it's an opening up of the kinds of roles that you can play. You know, like um, uh, we're still finishing a project which is with the government um, to uh, help um, uh, resettle uh, about 500 families that have been, uh, uh, no, uh, I think 2,000, you know, um, houses that have been affected by the construction of um, a water dam in China, you know. And from the government's perspective, this politically, it was a sudden realization that we could help them uh, through the communication process, you know, and, and help them politically, you know. Um, and what we got was the opportunity to engage in a certain type of project that almost never has 
you know, uh, designers involved because of the, the, the way these projects are set up and they're very politically sensitive. Mm. So it was a kind of exchange of, um, <coughs> of, uh, of agencies, you could say. Which project was that? Or is uh, this ongoing? It's, it's ongoing? I see, okay. Um, what's interesting to me about this is, especially when you acknowledge the necessity of accepting the state of affairs and finding ways to work within them, especially in the context of a country like China, where you are working with the government, as well as many other stakeholders. How do you, how do you find your compass, I guess, your moral compass, especially in the context of, let's say, this example of the massive displacement of a group of people because of this top-down decision to make it dam? And how do you ensure that the work doesn't become a kind of PR operation or something? <clears throat> By doing what architects have always done, which is uh, to, to bring value, um, you know, to the, uh, the building process, to um, a building that um, goes beyond the, the, the money spent, you know, mm -hmm. by simply... Um, uh, starting to, through your work, um, uh, engage a kind of social value, you know, uh, you know, to be able to create mm -hmm. these other forms of value. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think I've asked yeah, that question know, very well. I'll yeah. probably cut I, it out. I, I want I to get close to something. I, I know, but you're, you're, um, you're really talking, I think, about politics. I mean, uh, can architects do good work working for bad people somehow <laughs> you, you know or, or or with you know we work a lot with governments mm -hmm. you know doing things that maybe we don't dis don't agree with you know and I think there is a there's a history of that 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 for me is the power of the architect you know we're mm -hmm. really we're talking about the role of the architect and how it's transformed mm -hmm. you know and, and this idea of the the powerful architect that comes through a kind of patronage system mm -hmm. we can mm -hmm. fantasize about that but you know, but I think we have exist. to. I also it's think we need to re sort of retrack a little bit, right? Because part of, you know, part of our engagement is about a discovery through doing projects or through engaging with different types of organisations or governments to find out how is it best to intervene, right? In some cases, it doesn't always work out. You know, uh, there have been cases when. You know, for example, we've done a project in Mongolia with the government, and after that, we decided we're not going to work with the government anymore. So, actually, it is about this sort of situated practice, learning from those experiences to find out more about how we can intervene in a different way to further change, you know. And then it's, you know, it might come back at some point when we're in a position to engage with the government to instigate or initiate another form of policy change or something like that, but it takes time. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, every project we do is a learning experience, you know, everything, every form of engagement, something, some other challenge comes out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also not, it's not always this sort of black and white sort of condition. Yeah. I mean, I think what I was getting at, or maybe a different way of framing it is, in the context of a contextual practice like rural urban framework, where 
there is this intense sensitivity and a real deep consideration for all these influences that go well beyond the social, that are political, economic, environmental. There, I think, exposes you or the designer who works in this way to a certain vulnerability to become an accessory to um, a certain cynical agenda, perhaps. But I think we have to... Um, conditions change, right? Mm -hmm. Politics changes. And the real-life experience that we found in China from, you know, working in the Hu Jintao period, as John described, with Hong Kong as this conduit for certain forms of investment, is now long, no longer the case. So the projects after that, there, were, there wasn't that NGO support, and so it became working with local government. And we had a couple of projects which were extremely difficult, and we were trying to engage or find out how we could engage in these types of projects. And as a result, our practice now has diversified and approached things differently. So I think today we don't do those projects anymore, really. We've actually consciously made a decision that those are the types of projects that maybe are the, not really the ones that we think the type of work that we're doing and the engagement that we're doing can have an effect or an impact. So we've had to change how we work based on those conditions that we're facing as that form of situated practice. Mm -hmm. So a situ the, the notion of a situated practice means that it is dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. That it has to change, that it has to mutate and adapt to the conditions that are faced. And we're always searching for how can we make architecture that's relevant in those places? And sometimes that means you have to change your approach. We've kind of been alluding to the way that things have really changed since the practice started in terms of the climate that you're working in, both in Hong Kong and mainland China. And before we started recording, I was talking to Josh about this piece I read that came out last week in The New Yorker by Evan Osnes that really tries to define precisely how things have changed and tries to identify what's been termed a kind of malaise in China in terms of the economic downturn, decreases in population, this mass exodus of the entrepreneurial class to other um, countries, um, and also the slow, slowly diminished presence of independent culture. Um, you know, bookstores closing down, music venues shuttering. And this real sense of disaffection amongst Chinese people about what, what is possible now. At the same time, a lot of Chinese graduates within the first six months of finishing school apparently are moving back to their hometowns. So this dynamic of migration to the city that maybe prompted or instigated the kind of investigations that RUF were pursuing has changed so much. These are some of the changes that have happened. At the same time, the Umbrella Movement, the 2019-2020 protests here in Hong Kong, here at this university, post-COVID upheavals in China as well. There's been so much. And I wonder, given the responsiveness of your practice to political conditions and economic ones, as well as social ones, how has all of that, <laughs> how does that change the way you work? And if you were doing more projects in, in rural areas before, is there a kind of turning point now 
or the practice shifts its focus? And if so, where do you look? We, I mean, most of what we're known for, in a way, is for that work during that period of time. Mm-hmm. In a way, we've had to pivot, mm-hmm. you know, because the politics have changed. And we've had to pivot different, in different ways. And we've each found a different way to engage. Mm. So my work, uh, or the way that I'm approaching it, is through uh, different places, through emerging economies. So I've shifted to work, well, I shifted in 2009 to look at Mongolia. And now we're working in Nepal and Manila as emerging economies that are also facing rapid urbanization and the same set of problems, but in very different contexts. So for me, I've pivoted away from those you know, economic and political uh, issues that you brought up away from China. Um, and John has sort of found a way to still engage in China, but in also in a very different way. So we've shifted a little bit as a collective practice, but different intentions and different sort of routes that begin to, um, again, try and find ways of making architecture. I was going to say that uh, you, you talk about these changes, right? Um, but let's define it. And, and uh, one article I remember also reading the New York Times, um, Thomas Friedman, uh, some, some years ago, talked about like the, the three major changes, you know, um, but this is already outdated, right? So, but he talked about, of course, um, climate, you know, and environmental, but um, technological, you know, transformation through social media. And um, I can't remember the third one. <laughs> no, no, finance. No, it's about finance. It's, it's about, uh, you know, um, the culture of finance, you know, and the, the, the way that these three have impacted. Mm-hmm. And I think you can add, you know, fourth or maybe in the fifth political instability, you know, that is, that is affecting us. And um, I think it's just about finding ways to constantly be addressing these transformations, you know. So, so Josh has found very, I think, uh, unique ways to tap into and work with like the World Bank or, you know, through, through this kind of um, uh, carbon, um, you know, uh, uh, carbon, uh, uh, I don't know how to say, carbon exchange funding, you know, to create good architecture. Um, for me, it's been about uh, engaging technology, you know, it's did a project for like, with uh, a colleague, uh, 3D printing, um, uh, colleague Lydia Rotoy, and, and bringing a robot to 3D print a traditional, you know, wooden house, you know, in order to actually uh, support the carpenters. I won't get into that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, the, a lot of this has also um, transformed towards an engagement with education, you know, so, um, you know, I just started a program called the Building Society that was started in January. And it's about a program that in many ways is responding and touching upon um, the issues of uh, technology, social transformation, you know, and uh, environmental transformation. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think th- that we can agree on. Yeah, no, but I think it, it's partly because there's a, it's again, it's finding that way through, right? Uh-huh. And this program is enabling you to engage with those places in a way that may, may have shifted, right? It's a new way because the, the, the NGO route doesn't work in the same way anymore. No. 
So it's a different yeah. pathway. It's an exploration to find ways, yeah. you know, um, for not architecture, but the architect. You know, yeah. I mean, one yeah. thing we've constantly been discussing, I mean, we're, we're focused on different sites, but we're always discussing the role of the architect, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's been very and interesting. Yeah, and for me, I've, I've had to set up this new, new kind of architectural startup, which is a little bit outside the university, uh, called District Development Unit, as this ent kind of impact enterprise, in a way, to try and do what John was mentioning, is like how to try and capture some of those global green funds and capture that in order to make architecture in these places to begin to engage with forms of housing that isn't just affordable but you know is sustainable as well mm. so i think there are different routes that we're trying to you know navigate and find these ways through systems so it's interesting it seems like following this this gradual obstruction of work or the possibility of doing work in mainland china in this kind of rural context that the practice was predicated on. There's been a kind of forking of paths in a way, it seems, between the two of you. Well, it's, it's about context still. Yeah. I mean, you could say that what we are talking about, you know, are very much the same kind of issues. You know, we are both dealing with um, uh, environmental, um, you know, climate change, like big time, you know. Um, and yet the, the context you know, if you deal with it in Mongolia or you're dealing with it in Nepal, you know, and I'm dealing with it in, in northern China where these underground houses uh, are under threat because it's suddenly raining a, a whole lot more, you know. But so it's a belief in place, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that the architecture, the uniqueness of it still comes from that generalizing force, but trying to find that kind of local response. I think there's this shared belief. Well, I, I mean, maybe it's something as well that, you know, there's a, there's a looseness to how we work. We don't have to, you know, rural environment doesn't even have a bank account. You know, there's, there's a degree of freedom which we have where we can decide how we want to work, right? It's not forced. We're not like having to work on projects in a way that typical practices or partners work together. And I think that's an, ad, an advantage, right? We can decide to explore different things, you know, separately, you know, individually. We can pursue things that we're passionate about in different ways. We can collaborate with other people. Yeah, it's called so, polyamorous. Yeah, yeah, I believe <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm less polyamorous, but John like, <laughs> likes to dabble. Um, but, you know, like, but that's great, right? Wow. And it means when we, we actually want to have a conversation, we choose to have that, and that's productive rather than always forcing it down a singular path of, okay, we have to do this project and we have to collaborate on it right now. And I think that we, 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 we didn't understand that, I think, at the beginning, because in a way when we set up, it was like, okay, we're going to collaborate and we have to work on projects. But now I think there's an understanding as you know, we've grown through working together and also working separately that this thing can be a little bit looser. And that's great.
an interest, like if we look at architectural history and also your position in academia, in a particular um, discourse around vernacular architecture, and Bernard Rudowski in particular, who seems like a real, in a way, one of the lodestars of, of the work, or a point of reference that uh, you're revisiting now. And in fact, you're retreading these projects that were featured in that MoMA exhibition from 1964, mm -hmm. um, Architecture Without Architects, to understand how these places have changed. So, John, you were talking about these dugout dwellings in, is it northern Shanxi province? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Could you talk a bit about your interest in revisiting Rudowski's project? Um, I would say one thing, you know, uh, the, the new reading of it or the revisiting is simply to consider the role of the architect. So architecture without architects uh, set up a very um, clear dichotomy, you know, and it was in, in many ways, uh, it was quite a, a celebration of this, um, this uh, 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 incredible forms you know, that were the result of, you know, uh, um, local conditions. And um, I was interested in rethink, revisiting the project because if you look at it as a design process, you know, suddenly you, you start to think about collectivity, you know, there's no authorship, you know. Um, if you revisit the, many of the projects physically as, as we've done in this underground house, suddenly there's like factories woven in between. You know, they're, they're not, no longer pure, they're very conflicted situations. And out of that was um, an interest in what uh, locals were doing. Um, uh, a book that um, was published called Asphalt Houses, which was done with another colleague here, Sony Devabaktuni. Um, you know, celebrated essentially uh, the design of um, of this, uh, this uh, well, Rudolfsky calls them uh, untrained builders, but he also calls it the untutored imagination, you know. And it's one thing to be able to say, I'm an architect because I can really start to appreciate these things, you know. I can identify these things. I want to bring that uh, as an example and as a lesson. And then to you know, in a funny way to also go back and to begin to engage, you know, and our chance to engage in this underground house in Chinese is called Di Kang Yuan, is um, because uh, the two or three years ago, they had such heavy flooding and rains that, uh, you know, people got scared and they, they're not built for, you know, heavy rain. They're, they're really pits in the ground. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, about 80, 90 percent of them moved up. And uh, we were working with, um, uh, Mingda Foundation, which is here at Hong Kong U, a, a charity that sponsors students and has become a kind of a research and design project with also two other colleagues, you know. I'm, I'm very interested in to uh, 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 polyamory of the, you know, of uh, creative polyamory, mm. you know. Um, so with Olivia Altavir and Lydia Ratoy, um, we're doing, a, yeah, a project there. So, I don't know, I mean, I, maybe I missed your question at some point. No, I mean, it's... And it, absolutely, and it sounds like there's this preservationist aspect to it as well, this concern for uh, the continued relevance of traditional or vernacular forms in architecture. I mean, it's the same 
Josh, with the the girl structures that you're looking at in a way? Kind of the opposite in a way though actually, because I'm quite critical of the vernacular because the conditions of urbanization have meant that they've become kind of obsolete, right? You know, the ger itself has become part of the cause of the creation of these vast sprawling districts which have no infrastructure at all because of its portability, it's lightweight, can be moved easily and it's so cheap and it can be replicated thousands of times. So it's actually the cause of the detrimental urbanism in that, in that city, in Ulaanbaatar. So the, the, the angle for me is, is that it has to be questioned, the vernacular. Mm-hmm. It's not just that it's good and therefore has to be preserved but it has to adapt to the new context that it's being faced, mm-hmm. right? The new different types of urban pressures. Yeah, which is the same. I mean, it's the same with the work of Josh, I think. It's not merely preservation. But instead of, let's say, proposing a new mass housing typology for these formerly um, nomadic people, you're embracing the fact that they can remain in these traditionally nomadic structures with additional plugins or adaptations to them to render them more habitable and more efficient. Yeah, but it's because they have them, because it's the most pragmatic way to create and keep space. Mm-hmm. But they know. want them, they, they like them. They, they it's have... It's part of their identity. No, well, you know? yes, there I mean, is part of a cultural yeah, identity so that it is relevant, but you can't remove the deep down pragmatics and the economic forces that mean that's why they're there still. And it's the same we're grappling with in Nepal as well. They have these beautiful vernacular brick and timber buildings, you know, and some of them have fallen down, the 2015 earthquake, and people don't want to have these structures anymore. They want to have concrete frame and it's safe. That's one reason. Another reason is the cost has gone up, so they don't have the carpenters and the, the expertise to build them anymore. So the pricing to create those now don't make sense. So the whole conditions for that vernacular architecture to emerge and be relevant mean that the, you know, something else has to happen. But aren't we say, both saying the same thing? I mean, I think the word is uh, to evolve them, you know, the, the, the necessary yeah. evolution of that, and, and which needs the, the role of the architect, you know, the, in a way the opposite of Rudolfsky's theory, you know, that, that uh, it's a field which uh, is, is rich with uh, possibility, you know, and, and it has a lot to do with urbanization, you know, so it's, it still ties back to the same old, you know, um, um, issues that has a lot to do with uh, the way architecture is made, you know, post-industrialization still, like, you know, that everything is being shipped all over the world. I mean, I think we're both, in some sense, has, have taken certain ethical stance to try and uh, work with people to build locally as much as possible, mm-hmm. you know. Um. Just have two more questions, and I know you have to go quite soon. Um, you mentioned, John, in relation to Rudowski, this interest in, um, in, the, in vernacular architecture for the ways in which it represents the untutored imagination. And so it just makes me wonder this is a question for both of you, how you've taken your experience in working in these very contingent vernacular conditions and contexts, how that affects the way you teach and how you in turn might feel obligated to undo a certain form of education to enable this kind of work to persist in the field. 
For me, it's not about undoing. Um, it's actually looking back to uh, precedents and forms of practice where actually the, the role of the architect uh, had much more of a stake. Uh, so we go back to Team 10, we go back to Previ, we go back to look at models where architects were trying to invent forms of typological change that could really influence government and policy when architects were at the table to those discussions. And I think that is a kind of missing part of history that needs to be brought back. In a, in a sense, I don't think architects were at the table anymore in terms of the World Bank or... We're hiding know, under the table. The, <laughs> the UN. So how do we, you know, reclaim that space to actually make architecture in these places? And I think that, for me, is part of, you know, really trying to create uh, agency for, for the architects of the future. And how do we teach that? Yeah, mm. And we can begin to teach that through... Uh, them going to these places. We just got back from Nepal where the student projects are running in parallel with our own forms of investigation. They of course can have a little bit more looseness in terms of certain constraints but they're working with the stakeholders, they're understanding those economic conditions and they're seeing you know and empowering them a little bit. You know if they feel that they can empower to, to make some change then that's a form of education in which they maybe I'm not just going to work in an, an office in Hong Kong doing stair, staircase details, right? So mm -hmm. I think that is a critical for them to experience that. So for me and the way we teach, and Jersey and Kent are, are part of that team, they're involved in those projects in Mongolia and Nepal, it's really important that we galvanize that way of thinking for this future generation. Mm. Yeah, everyone in this, uh, this office teaches. I think the word I would use is uh, resistance, you know, how, um, how does the precedence, how does uh, uh, teaching the design process, you know, build up, um, build up resistance, you could say, well, resistance to what? I think resistance to the role that the architect has been in many ways, uh, um, uh, I wouldn't say pushed into, you know, but is is very much uh, boxed in, you know, and um, that has to not just their role in relation to clients and developers and funding models, but their role also uh, at the, the the tail end of a process which is about, um, you know, global shipping, manufacturing, you know, big companies and, and the products they produce and the, the architect is basically, you know, shopping for these things. So, so how do you build up a certain form of uh, valid resistance to that, you know, and I believe it's, it's through uh, a very robust ability to design, you know, to, and, and when you're able to do that, you know, for me, architecture is about story, is a story. You know, the, the, the best buildings are stories. You know, what I see there are stories. And, and it's also, for me, the, the, the power that architecture can have to convince, you know, not just someone to build it, someone to fund it. Exactly. And that's what I wanted to get to. Like, to have a seat at the table and to, to be in a position of resistance, basically to have power, is to be in proximity to money. <laughs> And to have financial literacy and understand how, as an architect, to 
position yourselves in relation to where the money is available now to do the kind of work you want to. And it sounds like it's these multiple kind of myriad um, funders in different sectors within and beyond the government, uh, NGO and private. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about how the work is financed. Yeah, I don't know anything about money. That's Josh's, <laughs> Josh's question. No, I mean, um, I was going to say just one thing about the, the role of education as well, because I feel there's a little bit that's generational and it partly to do with maybe some of the political issues you might be, or economic issues that young people are facing, facing today. But I did feel we did this course last year about the role of the impact architect and I felt a little bit this deadening of, of aspiration a little bit from, from the students when we were asking, oh, where do you want to be in three to five years time? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was quite reductive in the sense, well, I just want to work in an office. And, and whereas I think our generation was like, I want to do anything but that, you know, and I felt there was this sort of generational shift a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think Partly is that resistance to what's going on in the profession? Yes, I think so. And I think it is, again, to say, well, how can we begin to feel empowered? And yes, to become empowered is to know about how the money flows and works. So we've been incredibly naively exploring the role of sort of impact finance and green climate finance and how we can begin to leverage some of that into our own form and our own models of, of working, because I think we suddenly realized that, you know, it's not, it's not economically sustainable what we do. So how can we think about, everyone's talking about impact finance, everyone's talking about green finance, the Green Climate Fund is a global fund. How can we try and find ways that our designs and our ideas for affordable and sustainable housing, can we find a way to get some of that? money in order to make this form of housing accessible to many, many people. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. But it's not that easy, right? Actually, it's, you know, all the finance world is, is not something that I'm so, you know, au fait with. And it's, but we're learning or embracing it or coming up with decks and forms of communication that we hadn't used before or framing what we do differently in terms of this other alternative impact practice is really interesting because I think that way if we can find a way to do that then we can get a seat at the table then we have a way to not only get the kind of income streams necessary to support what we do but also to enable people to get access to that form of housing so it's something that is a new way of thinking about how to make architecture. It sounds really entrepreneurial. Yeah. I mean, it is an entrepreneurial action. I like to say I would do the opposite. I'm in, engaged in a very powerful uh, personal daily meditation, which is called the denial of money, you know, the disbelief in money. And um, a funny thing was uh, Olivia and I were talking yesterday, and he was very excited, and he kept saying, what's your best project? You know, come on, say one, you know, what's your best project? Just for listeners who don't and, know, who is Olivia? Uh, Olivia Altever is, is one of my uh, 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 former classmates, uh, is our colleague and um, someone I've worked with. Um, and it's our, our colleague. It's a, it's a, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit of a triangle. But uh, 
Um, and I, you know what, I, uh, uh, I, I, I said the pinch, you know, which is a project. I mean, it was just more for him. You're rolling your eyes. And I realized something. It's um, one of the things I like about it uh, is that it is the cheapest project I've ever done. And so for me, this is the way to um, get free of, you know, of, of the, 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 the money concern, you know. Yes, it's, it's necessary, but it doesn't actually matter uh, how much money you have um, in terms of how much uh, uh, you can do with architecture. You know, and th that, that has been a, a great lesson for me that, that we, have, um, uh, we have discovered and, and a belief, I think, that we have uh, built up over all this time, you know, working for very little money, you know. I mean, personally, ourselves, working for free, but, um, you know, all our projects are extremely, uh, extremely cheap. So do you, you kind of... You sustain yourselves through the income as teachers at HKU primarily, and then, and then the rest is uh, the income of the practice is for other employees ex entirely. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an NGO. I mean, uh -huh. we work pro bono for for our work. Mm. Uh, All our staff yeah. are supported through research grants right, that okay. we have to acquire in order to support the team. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and they get they engage in teaching as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, there's this delusion that uh, that that you know, if I have more money, I could make a better architecture, mm -hmm. you know, um, and and I, I don't I don't uh, agree with that. All my experience says otherwise. Actually, you know, um, there have been really things we have been able to achieve because there's no money. But that's a constraint, and yet what's interesting is there are different models now, right? You still need money to do anything, right? It's like a fallacy. It doesn't make any. You need I'm money in to denial, do something. Sure. But what you haven't mentioned is that the idea that you know we're looking at it, you know, one other way, just in order that we can make things happen. You're also doing that through the course, right? That the the course is enabling you to take students and build projects together in these remote locations. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's part a different of the, funding uh, the education. model. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it's, it's about exchange of values. Sure, but exactly. It's, but it's know. it's still a different uh, way. It's not just like a client with money who comes to you and you act as a service provider. That's not it at all. And I think constantly we're we're sort of adapting our model and this role of the architect to you know you know engage with the specificity of the context that we're working with. To end. I'm so fixated on this impact architecture class you were talking about, Josh, and the, the surprising conservatism or lack of optimism amongst the students that you were discussing, that there, there seems to be a real closing down of possibilities in a way. I mean, how do you counter that? How do you guide the way out of that, that disappointment and the opportunities that the profession seems to afford now? Or is that your job at all? <laughs> well, that, that was the idea of the course, right? It was to say to, uh, and it was quite interesting because we brought in practitioners operating in Hong Kong. So very, someone from a very large practice, someone from an international practice, someone who just started out as a small practice doing interior jobs. And they talked about what they did and how they gained certain opportunities and how their practice had evolved. 
And I think for the students, it was a bit of an eye-opener to say, is, is that what it looks like out there? And then to reflect on themselves to say, well, what, what, is, what, what am I going to do? And some of them, of course, will navigate to those off. That's fine. But the hope was, through the course, that we could introduce them to other methods of working, other approaches. We brought in some impact people to talk about how they could do it. And some, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, some kindling there that might ignite some ways of thinking about architecture differently. So I think that's what we have to start with. And if we can try and, I mean, we haven't got the answer to it. It's not like a, we understand it or we, we're struggling also to find a way to deal with these conditions or deal with finance in a different way. But some of them might be interested in that too. Some of them might take that on. So I think it was about trying to learn these approaches together in a way. And I think teaching and that, that place in the institution to explore it in that way is really important. Josh and John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks. You know, I disagree with you. And, you know, there's these kids, I mean, they, you have to understand that we grew up in an environment of stability and hopefulness. And so what we wanted was adventure, you know. Just and just all you talk. Oh, no, no, no. I, so no he, had the, he needs to have the last word. I just <laughs> wanted to, I wanted to, I waited until we're done. But, uh -huh. but th their environment is super unstable. I mean, you think about this, the students I'm we not, have. I'm I mean, not, think about the last not 10 years. I'm critiquing them for being conservative. Yeah. That's why they are conservative. I understand that. I'm not saying that, 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 you know, that I'm blaming them for it, but they are conservative. Yeah. Extremely. But I guess the real question is, do you give them what they want, or are you able to, to open the door to another possibility? That's, of course, yeah, what it's about. about. It's also, it's a common problem. But, but what we experienced is totally different. It's very entrepreneurial. If they knew that, I bet they would send all their students to you, Josh. Well, I think I you did know? get some of those. <laughs> <laughs> I did get a few of those. And like, oh, this is how I make money. Okay, I'll take this course. I was like, good luck. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to John Lynn and Joshua Bolchover. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.